Welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm your host, Ethan Butte. I'm on a mission to explore and understand the role of the Chief Evangelist and the movement behind it. How should founders, investors, and C-suites be thinking about it? How does it benefit the company? Which companies and markets need evangelism most? What does the work involve? What does success look like? And who's a good fit as a chief evangelist? That's what we're exploring at chiefevangelist.com and in conversations like this one, which is brought to you by Ringmaster Conversational Marketing and their evangelist-powered podcasting package. Learn more at ringmaster.com. Today, we're learning from a fantastic human being who very directly shares responsibility for A, my becoming a chief evangelist years ago, and B, my hosting this show today. In fact, a few years back, I interviewed him about his role at the time, co-founder and chief evangelist at Terminus, where he started as CMO. He's a three-time author, a longtime podcast host, and co-founder and CEO of the advisory firm GTM Partners, Sangram Vajre. Welcome to Chief Evangelist. Ethan, I think you should have just said a good old friend. Like, I think that would have taken totally. care of everything. <laughs> yeah, man. It's awesome. I think I think we'll get to how all of this came to be. And I, I probably told it uh, before to a number of people, including people that will listen to this, this episode. But I want to start, before we get into any of that, I want to start with a question that I'm starting with everybody, uh, which is what is the most important job of a Chief Evangelist? Yeah, I think when when I look at all of that and everything I ended up doing, even at Terminus, I think it comes down to one word, and, and that word is trust. The only thing you and I as evangelists really bring, and it's it's the only thing, but probably the most important thing for any brand is trust. And you don't, and, and that's actually companies do not have luxury of not having somebody who has trust. Uh, with your product. So everybody who's listening to this right now can relate to it where they would get a customer and the customer is, well, oh, why did you buy from us and have those conversations with them? And like, oh, um, I, you, know, I th- you know, I've seen your thought leadership. I've seen what you guys do. And that's why we were in there. And like, there's no attribution software that can track that. There's no Ethan did that. Talk. They can't track that. So, so it's hard to track it but you would know it over and over if you actually ask those questions. The one word that comes that brings everything together after eight years of doing it, I feel that our job is to create trust. I love it. And why do you think a, at the risk of asking the obvious, but, but at the opportunity of getting into some really interesting conversation, why do you think a human, a chief evangelist, or, you know, in another company, a product evangelist, or a um, you know, a technical evangelist or, or technology evangelist, why a human being at the risk of asking the obvious to a very relationship oriented person, why does a human carry the opportunity to build trust with a brand and a product? I think loyalty today can be bought way faster than one would think. Like we all ask about Uber. Let's just use that as an example. I, and you probably, we have both used Uber and I still have it sometimes. And as I travel and I remember last time I was sitting, uh, you know, after my flight, I was sitting at the airport. I saw, saw a taxi in front of me. Um, and I'm calling Uber because that's what I'm used to doing. I'm doing Uber and it's 15 minutes away and there's a taxi right in front of me. And I'm thinking to myself the whole time. So I, what, why, what am I doing here? I'm losing 15 minutes, which is what the convenience of Uber was. And I know maybe the taxi is not that clean, but that looks pretty clean taxi. And I don't want to wait rather 50, but I've spent 15 minutes. So my loyalty changed. And I'm like, I'm not going to do 15 minutes. I canceled it. I got in taxi and came home and I was fine. And I feel like, wow, that shifted for me instantly. There was no loyalty in my mind. It was all about convenience and time. Like that's the only two reasons why I use Uber. And, and if you look at every product and service we ever buy, it's probably in that screen. Oh, is it convenient for me or is it saving me time? Like if they, it answers those questions, you're going to go for it and you're going to ship. So I think our loyalties can be bought at the end of the day. What cannot be bought is like, whoa, I, do I trust this? Because my job is on the line. Now that's a very different conversation. I will rather be inconven- let it be inconvenient because if my job is on the line, I'll, I'll still take 
extra time if your product takes time to get on. Or if it's it's expensive, I'll still buy it because I can trust that you will deliver and you will come through and all those things that comes with trust. So I feel like because in a transactional world, loyalty can be bought, I don't think you have a choice but to start building trust. And trust, by definition, can be built with humans, not with robots. Love it. Um, let's get really, and, and the thing I appreciate there in particular is A, the divide between you know some of this lighter weight transactional stuff that we don't have an expectation to, to, to involve a human in, and this idea of creating kind of a bulletproof loyalty because it's like, these were the people that met me, or this is the person, or this is the company, or these are the two or three people that met me where I was when I really needed some guidance or support or help. When it came time to make a decision, I didn't even talk to anybody else because I just had that relationship there. And I know you've had that experience uh, at Terminus. And of course, you you pioneered as an evangelist, you're really pioneering this ABM movement um, and wrote two books on it. Um, at the same time, there are a number of competitors coming up, but I'll bet a lot of the folks that were Terminus customers and are today didn't even look at anybody else in part because of the work that you did. So let's spend a little, let's spend a little bit of time there. Practically, um, you know, as you're like tackling or planning a, a week or a month or a quarter as a chief evangelist, um, what were some of the activities that you performed to kind of fulfill your mission? I would put that in two categories. One was there's internal evangelism and there's external evangelism. I think a lot of people don't even think about the internal evangelism because I recognize it like, oh, even though I know a lot of our customers, I don't know my team as much well, or they don't know what I can do for them and how to bring me in deals and conversations because we went from like 10 people company to 50 to 100. And by the time we got to 200 people, people were like, I don't know, how do we use Sangram again? Like, yeah, everybody seems to know him, but like what it is. So I had to overspend time internally at, as the company grew uh, as in, instead of just doing externally. So internally, I would try to be part of the sales meetings. I'll try to be part of like, give, give me the top 50 accounts that we need to close. Uh, I'll find a way, like how do I invite them on podcast and create that touch point and conversation. Uh, all right, where are these people? Okay, maybe we should just do a dinner or a road show or event. Like I could think of it because I had no barriers on it. All I cared about is like, how do we get in touch with these people and build relationship between and what are the biggest pain points do they have? Hey, maybe put me on the call with our top 10 deals in the pipeline um, just to use me and tell the, hey, this is the author of two books. Typically, most people would take a call if you have written a book or so. So, and the, his job is to just help you with strategy. I don't even, most times I didn't even use the word terminus in most of my conversations. Like, okay, what, what's the problem? What, what okay. Oh, here, what's happening with that campaign? What's happening with that strategy? How are you getting buy-in from the board? Like we're talking about budgets. We're talking about all kinds of things that the sales, nobody's involved in it. It's just me and the CMO of another company. So internal evangelism to use me for that was critical. And we would have deals over deals. Again, it's hard to attribute to an evangelist call, but I knew, oh, that just happened last week. And there was two conversations I had with the CMO that no salesperson can reach out to the CMO and have that level of conversation. So internal evangelism is key. And I factored a lot of my time as the company grew on that to get on deals. External evangelism was just nobody told me what to do, right? Nobody had a job description for what to do. Uh, you and I talked about that. I even called Guy Kawasaki like, hey, what did you do at Apple? Tell like, and you, you were kind enough to do that interview with me. And all it came down to, okay, we just need to be in front of people. We need to be the first people talking about these things and getting conversation going. So externally, I just started the podcast and events as a way to create that conversation in the marketplace. So it was external and internal evangelism all coming together and increasingly internal as the company grew. I love it. I, I'm, I'm going to guess, I describe, and I've described it even on the this uh, first few episodes of this show, I describe my work as seasonal, where like, you know, it's this way for a few months, and then I need to shift kind of priority or attention over the next, you know, seven months because of this dynamic, or if I'm researching and writing a book, that's going to be, you know, and then planning the launch of it, that's going to be, you know, often that, would you say the same thing, kind of like a push and pull, kind of proactive, but also reactive to the needs of the business internally, externally at the time, like, and, and how important, I guess I'll just turn it into a question. How important is it to make sure that this evangelist 
it has the purview. I mean, you were co-founder, so that I mean, yeah. and in prior CMO, so it made sense. But you know, for someone else to make sure that this person has the purview into what's going on in the business and the strategy and all of that, like I know that's kind of two questions in one. But uh, so I guess speak to that. Like, what would you advise, and what was your experience in terms of what you knew about the business because of your level that you were operating at? And your ability to kind of get ahead and react to different things as necessary. Well, first uh, of all, I think the idea of evangelist becomes, or to many as the company grew, is like, well, not really sure what that person does, right? And I and I've been in those shoes. All of a sudden, I'm like, wait, wait a minute, how do you not know what I do? Like, have you not like I have that like you know, like passive aggressive feeling internally? Uh, if I'm being very honest, or like, what do you mean? Like, you know, don't you see all this thing, right? What do you mean? I haven't read the book <laughs> that I wrote about this on behalf of our company. Yeah, right. So it's it's a it's it's a real challenge with new folks and new teams coming in. So I think anybody who's trying to be in that role. Don't underestimate the over education that you'll have to do internal, internal enablement around it. So I did certain things myself. I just took it on uh, because I felt like, oh, as the company is growing, we're missing this thing. So every week I would just do a quick update to all the leaders of the group, uh, not to the company, but all the leaders, because I didn't have any direct reports. I wasn't really fully, truly reporting to anybody um, in the best way. So I'm like, well, it's my job. It's nobody else's fault or it is my job to educate everybody what I'm doing and how they can leverage me. So I would take painstakingly and very much hard to talk, hey, here's what I did kind of thing. But I had to do that. I recognize, hey, I just interviewed the top three deals that are in our pipeline. So here's the interview, feel free to share. Um, I'm, we're doing a event, uh, a dinner with the top five uh, future customers. So here's something that anybody wants to support, join. And if you want to do more in different cities, let me know. Um, I'm hopping on two, I hopped on two different calls uh, from customer success. And here's what I noted. So I think marketing, we should create a research report that is focused on this pain point. So I would outline something. Here's what we did. Here's what we would have noted or observed. And here's what we could do and should do and tag the leaders on the group. And inevitably, conversations will begin to happen on like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Let's just chat. And then uh, that will go internally. So I had to take on myself to be the evangelist of my evangelism. If, if that's not overdone uh, or oversaid right now. Yeah, really good. And I guess just for folks listening that are either thinking about how to structure this in their organization or in the role or want to be in the role, um, a that's super interesting. And as a co-founder, I think you probably have or had, um, more distance if you needed it or wanted it and less oversight than almost any of the rest of us in the role. Um, because I'm in, and so the way I stay in touch and the reason I, as I start to feel guilty, it's, that's the challenging thing about interviewing people <laughs> who are, or were chief evangelists. I'm like, I'm doing my job so bad. Cause all these people have these cool ideas and they're doing things yeah. differently and better. Um, the reason I, and so as I, as, as you were describing kind of what you were doing proactively, I do have, like, I'm in the marketing leadership meetings. I'm in the senior leadership meetings. and I'm in the executive leadership meetings very consistently. So I guess I'm doing some of that reporting hand to hand, but it is interesting um, and day to day, week to week. And so it is interesting though, for your own documentation. I mean, it, when, when I, I get, you've already referred to our, our, our initial conversation with Guy Kawasaki that we did together. So I just, I'll lay this out really quickly because I'm going to go into something you shared with me on ours. Um, I reached out to you when you were hosting Flip My Funnel. I said, hey, man, I want to interview you as a guest on your own show so that your amazing audience can get to know you better because you always make it about the other people, which is what you're supposed to do. But I think I should interview you. And I think a cool topic would be your title, Chief Evangelist, which you playfully referred to as Accidental Evangelist. So I figured there was something. Oh, and you were not an uh, you were not an evangelist, but uh, were you an evangelist by that? No, this is how I got my title. Okay, yeah, right, right. I guess I'm telling the story to everybody, including <laughs> you. So, um, so you said because you're very community oriented, and that's a, I don't know how deep we'll be able to get into that today in our time together, but um, this you know you're a very community oriented person, and I've learned so much from you on that theme and topic. Um, and for folks listening, I'll write I'll, I'll write up uh, or add links to the to the write up on this um, to a conversation we did on the ten components to building a community. But uh, you said I'll do you one better. Yes, I'll do that interview with you. 
but I find three more evangelists and I'll run it as a four-part series once a week for a month. So I was like, oh, cool. So I knew Dan Steinman at Gainsight. Um, I cold reached out to Dave Izbitsky, the first employee and voice at Amazon, chief evangelist of Alexa and Echo at the time. He's since Now he's with the AWS portion of the business. Um, and then I just figured I'd cold reach out to Guy Kawasaki, who I found a, you know, kind of a plain email address online on one of his multiple websites, chief evangelist initially at Apple, probably the first chief evangelist, or certainly the first big one, um, and currently chief evangelist at, at Canva. And because he was doing publicity for his memoir, Wise Guy, I got a reply to that video email that I sent him um, from Penguin Random House publicity. And I remember when I told you, you were like, dude, that's awesome. Can I do that interview with you? I'm like, (laughs) I want to get in on that. I'm like, do whatever you want. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, yeah. So, so it's funny. So I wrote that up and I wrote 10 things I learned from four chief evangelists. Sub theme was if you're innovating, you must be evangelizing. Key thing I took from you that I share with everybody is that you're evangelizing the problem, not the product. But I wrote up that, and those are, those are a couple of the points of the 10 that I made in that post. And I went to Steve, um, my co-author on both books that I've written and um, our CMO at BombBomb. And I was like, Hey, Steve, I did this thing. It's not about BombBomb. It's not about video email. It's not about video messaging, but it's got some awesome people, some cool insights, some amazing brand names. I could put it on my personal website or I could put it on the BombBomb website. He said, go ahead and put it on the BombBomb website. So I did, I published it. I shared it with him. He was like, dude, this is cool. By the way, we need an evangelist and you're the right person for the job. And so- (laughs) That, so that's how it all, that's why I wrote the open the way I did. It's like, oh, wow. you, you unwittingly did. And, and here's the funny thing. The whole reason this podcast exists is that that blog post still ranks second or third in Google organically for the chief evangelist search. So I've had dozens, dozens of people over the past three and a half years since we did that project together, reach out and say, hey, I found this thing. It was super helpful because no one's writing about this. And that's why I knew that there was a podcast to be had anyway. That's my well, well, let me let me inject inject Please. one thing uh, as you catch a get a breather yeah. on that the whole story is if every every listening to this just take a note on this one like the fact that Ethan went on on this journey took a leap of faith and did this and the most important thing of all is he documented it I think a lot of people don't document and and many things that we know from history is because people actually took the time to document stuff. And as an evangelist, or it might feel very self-serving, uh, but it is probably something, one one area that most people miss. And I think over the, over the years, if there's one area where I've gotten better at than anything else is documenting the journey, documenting what you're doing. I literally always have an Evernote open with, I'm just documenting ideas. I'm documenting conversations. Anybody makes a point, I just document it because you never know when you're going back to it and how that's going to help you do it. So if nothing else, people just take the idea of documenting and use that as part of whatever you do in your life. It's, it's going to be helpful. I love it. And uh, for, for folks listening, Sangram, of course, practices what he preaches. And I get an email every week about, uh, you know, what's going on as you're building GTM partners um, and the, the wins, the losses, the personal stuff, the professional stuff. Like it's so anyway, documenting really, really good. Okay. So in that, of course, it's problem over product. And I think it's easy to say, but I think there's also a crux there. I think a lot of people that are unwilling, I'm thinking right now of CEOs or other leaders that are like, yeah, that all sounds good, but you're not. And, and frankly, at BombBomb, we've, we've struggled with it intermittently in a, in a variety of different ways too. Like, well, how can we afford to be spending this time and attention not talking about Terminus or not talking about BombBomb directly. Talk about this problem over product dynamic, especially in light of the fact that our work is already difficult to prove the ROI on. So <laughs> who does observe it, they're like, but he did deep. And this is something Dan Steinman told me. He was like, because yeah. he wrote customer success. He wrote yeah. that book. There are multiple names on it, but he was the one who sat down and wrote all the words in it. And he was like, when you read that book, you will never read the word gain sight. And you already took care to say it too. In most of my presentations, I never said terminus. So talk about that dynamic. Why is it so important to focus on problem over product and what close that gap so it's not so big a leap of faith for people that are like, but you can't not talk about the brand or the company or the product. Well, there's there's two thoughts on it. One, I think we already covered trust. 
and and the only way people are going to trust you is when you talk about their problem not your product so by definition you you have to you have to just recognize that as a psychological thing to do is that that's why it's important to talk about problems but here's the other thing is just just also giving credit to people that they're smart uh if people today who know you or follow you either on linkedin know that you're with bam bam you don't have to keep saying that to people that i'm with bam bam right like you know if you do decent in the work everybody in the world who follows you right now already knows that and so is with me everybody knew that i was the co-founder of terminus so i don't have to put terminus in everything if I'm presenting and do a keynote, somebody's introducing me like you just did. Oh, there is the co-founder of Terminus, CEO of GTM. So I don't have to shove GTM partners again in any of these things. What I do need to do is people to recognize, hey, I'm actually creating an analyst form. And what I'm thinking about is I want to find the best ways companies can be, and not be stack ranked, but use cases come to life, right? That's what I'm trying to do through this form. So I'll need to talk about that, what is important for people. Not that, oh, I'm building an analyst firm because I want to be a, a company that does analysts. Anyway, that, that's, that's nothing. Nobody's interested. Even I'm not interested in that, uh, to tell the truth of like just talking about that. I want to talk about what will serve customers and therefore have those conversations happen. You need the problem, a common thing in between you. And what you have in common is the problem. So I, I think it's just the most natural way to do it. I agree. And you, and I love that you uh, invoked the word trust again, right off the top of that response. And you're so much more approachable. Um, so I guess I'll just kind of ask you what your experience was in that, in that phase of, when you were chief evangelist at, at Terminus, you're so much more approachable and people are more willing to ask you more and different and better questions than if they're like, well, if I ask this person, then I got to you know, take a Terminus demo or something, you know, like I'm going to guess that because of the way you carried yourself, the way you presented yourself, um, then your, your problem orientation, your customer orientation, you probably got so many more conversations with potential and then subsequent buyers than you ever would have if you hadn't taken that approach. Yeah, I think even I'll take one step further on that, Ethan. What I remember, somebody actually wrote it in the contract that as part of the contract, they want Sangram to come and do keynote at their next event. And, you know, you think about that. Why would somebody want you as a vendor to come and do a keynote at your event? It doesn't make So they had make sure that that was part of the deal. So it went even that far, which, which goes back to the fact that they knew that I wouldn't be selling Terminus. They knew that my job would be to help talk about the problem and how to solve and the use cases and things that really matter and will be useful. So it became a thing where people would invite me to talk at their events. Um, and, 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 and the biggest thing was even flip my funnel. We invited our competitors to come on, on the stage and speak, which is on, on your post that you mentioned about. So we did all of these things so differently. But here's here's the big catch. I could do that because I'm a co-founder of a company and I could assert a little bit of weight on that one. I think about uh, Dermesh, who that inbound, right? He's He is, in effect, the most, like, he's the evangelist. He doesn't have any direct reports. He's by himself. And that's what he does. And inbound has it. You think about Nick Meta at Gainsight. Like, he is the CEO, but he's also the greatest evangelist for it. You think about Mark Benioff, that you will never hear about a CMO at, at, at Salesforce. Like mo- Nobody knows who's the CMO of Salesforce because Mark himself is the CMO. You think about all the way to Steve Jobs. Like you kind of like these, if you start at the C level, if you are that person, then I think you you need to make those decisions. Now, if you're someone who's within the ranks coming up to be a, be a chief evangelist, now you have a little bit more battle to fight. Uh, your battle really is that, can you make things like, hey, let's just invite my competitor. You can willingly say that in your organization, right? You'll get like crucified for that. So you have to figure out what works, what doesn't work, what level of evangelism. Are you doing a technology evangelist? Is that what you're going to be? Or are you going to be a community evangelist? So there's a different battles based on the roles that you play. A co-founder can play a very different role from evangelism perspective than somebody who actually comes through the ranks to become the evangelist. Hey, thanks for listening to Chief Evangelist. For so many reasons, podcasting is a great opportunity and channel for evangelism. If you've been thinking about a podcast or you want to shift production and promotion to a team that's especially evangelist friendly, 
check out ringmaster.com. Their Connect Engage Scale program is designed for evangelist-powered podcasting for software and tech companies in the growth stage. Again, you can learn more at ringmaster.com. They're also the team behind this podcast. Speaking of chief evangelist, let's get back to it. Really good. It, and so it just begs the question, because I don't think I, I asked you this the first time we talked about your 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 role. What was going on for you personally or with Terminus or in the market or with the account-based marketing or ABM movement um, that led to you saying, you know what, uh, my peers and board, uh, I am no longer the CMO, I'm the chief evangelist, or I, I feel like a, the right direction for me and the company is to go from CMO to chief evangelist. What was going on for you? Like that wasn't a dedicated role um, at the time, obviously chief evangelist. Yeah. What what was it about the market or yourself or the company or the movement that that gave you the vision to say this is I think something that would be right for all of us and pursuing it? Like how did that whole thing go and how did it get sparked? Well, candidly, I was about to get divorced if I wouldn't have made that decision, like straight up. Um, I was getting burned so bad by being an operator running marketing. And again, because we believe in new category, I actually had not only more, I was a CMO, but I had sales, customer success, marketing product, all reporting into me because that was oh, wow. a, yeah, yeah. my problem that I was trying to solve. And my co-founder CEO, Eric at that time was running the, the, uh, the, the CFO part and raising money and, and focusing on operation, operational element of it, but vision casting internally, vision casting externally and running events and running all of it. It was just crazy. So while the company went from a million to 5 million to 15 million by like the first three years of our company, um, I was just pouring everything I got into it. And my wife who gave me the opportunity to go leave Salesforce and do this, uh, pretty much like, I don't even know who you are anymore. It was a very tough moment and time. And it almost took me three, six months of like completely taking a step back and recognizing that I got my priorities really wrong. I, I feel like this, I can, I cannot do both things. I cannot be an operational leader and an evangelist all at the same time. I can't have 30 or 50 people reporting on as it was reporting into me and dependent on me at the same time, be on the road, evangelize and meet and do all this. I just can't do all of those things. And so I personally, I was in a really, really bad spot. Um, and it was all my doing. I just couldn't, I didn't know. I've never been there. And I didn't set the right expectations with myself or my family, with my team. I totally brought it on myself. Um, so it was a very candid conversation internally, like, all right, something got to give. And it was one of the hardest things to do at that time. Because like, how do you, how do you not, like, how do you not, like, I'm, I feel like I'm a pretty decent marketer. How do you, how do you give up marketing? Like, you like, I love, no, like, ah, like, it's just those things uh, that you want to change. You can't like sales and product vision and need to hire all these people. And just, it was too much. It was too much for me. Um, and I didn't realize it was too late, too long, too long of it. So it took me six months to almost reset myself, rethink what my role is. And I'm forever grateful for it now because, you know, our marriage got saved, our company continued to grow, like it, things, things turned out great, but there was a clear moment in time where I was in the chasm and I didn't know what, I couldn't crawl out of it unless I picked a side. Man, thank you so much for sharing that. I know that people can identify, not, I mean, maybe not with the exact details and certainly not any CMOs who also oversee sales and CS and products. I mean, that really is a chief operating officer. It's it's amazing. But you know, your personal passion, even the way you kind of closed that down with like, how do you let go of marketing? I mean, you you were had experience and passion and expertise for marketing. You're probably doing evangelizing too okay. while running all these other teams. I guess um as a follow-up. When you decided I need to make more time in my life, I can't keep performing at this level. You obviously sought the right people to fill in some of those roles to lead these different functions. Um, and you obviously did that successfully or else the company wouldn't have continued on the trajectory it did. For you, um, how did you arrive at evangelism in particular, both as 
this is my best self or this is how I can provide the most value. Like, because you, you know, another, another alternative is, well, you know what? We need to find someone to run product. We need to find someone to run sales. We need to find someone to run customer success. And I'm going to be a pure, true CMO straight up. So that was another path. So how did yeah. you decide evangelism? And then I guess, well, I kind of want to get into like why that title at that time too. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it twofold. One, um, I think it was more conversations internally. Like it's almost like without even saying and without even putting that title, that's what I was doing for three years. Like that's kind of got terminus to get to that number, um, to the conferences, the events, the podcasts, the books, everything we did was, was me acting as an evangelist all day long. So one, it was just a natural. So if people just call me that. I just never had a title or anything like, yeah, he's, the, he's our evangelist. Like people just call that uh, in general. So it became natural. It became very obvious that, okay, well, those are the two paths. Do you, you want any operational responsibility or do you think, and I was just so burnt out that I just didn't think I want operation. I couldn't sit in a peer room by looking at one silo, it just wouldn't make sense to me because I was, I've been running so many things. So either I had to make a choice of, do I take a singular role in the organization that is functional or do I stay outside of it and be, become more of like supporting all of those roles? Like in, a, in a, just a different way. So I felt like evangelist allows me to support all of those roles without having to worry about, well, if I was in problem, like, I don't want to do that. If I, like, I, or if I could, do, I just didn't want that, those thoughts in my head. So it made sense to just have a clean break, hire functional leaders for every area that we needed. And my job will be just externally. Like I don't want to do a lot of internal, because that's burnt me. I don't want to be in a hundred sales calls. I don't want to be in like, I just can't do that and have direct reports and and do performance reviews and and then travel. So it, again, it took me six months of therapy, uh, personal therapy and, and family therapy and everything to get out of what I'm really doing. And it comes down to really these two phrases. Uh, and I, I think I wrote about it at that time when you go went through it was that, that I learned a big lesson in my life around letting go and giving up. For the first few months, I thought I was giving up. I was giving up a title. I was giving up a role. I was giving up what I could do. I can be, I can do it all. Like what's wrong? Like I can do it. Right. And so, so I had this idea like, oh my God, am I not good enough? Like, why can't I do it? Others do it. Like there are people who do it. What's wrong? So I was in this giving up mode, which made me very, very bitter uh, with myself, quite frankly, and with some of the people I loved and cared for me. And then I think there was an aha moment in God's grace where I recognized that, no, actually I'm letting go. I'm letting go of all of these things so I can actually focus on the things that matter to most that I'm uniquely gifted to do. Nobody else can do as good of a job at this that then I can. Like I have to say those things to myself, right? Because it was hard. And, and I'm like, okay, if I can hire a CMO, right? Like, but you can't hire an evangelist, like do that. So I had to, like, I'm letting go of that so I can do what I think I can do the best and serve the company the best. So it was a lot of that, letting go and giving up idea. I love it. And the other thing I would add to letting go and giving up, it, because you know, g- giving up comes with so much emotional baggage and so much negative connotation, especially in Western culture. Like we should give up. You just got to keep going. You know, it's like it's, it's associated with so many unhealthy things in general. Uh, but you're also creating opportunities for other people to step in and learn to lead. Or, to, or yeah. to take responsibilities that they didn't have before. I love it. So another thing that was in there, and I'll just share my own experience, um, is I felt like when I had that opportunity, um, you know, I wasn't running four giant teams in a, you know, I was running two small teams in the marketing department, marketing operations and content and social. And so when Steve gave me this opportunity, I felt like for me, because I don't, you know, I haven't co-founded a company. I didn't work at Exact Target in Salesforce. Like I, you know, I regard it as a career risk to leave a VP marketing role and go into this. You know, because like you and like all the other people that I talked with, it, to to figure out what is this thing at all, just kind of out of intellectual curiosity. Um, you know, doing that evangelist series, all of them were like you, no direct reporting. Um, some of them had to report up, like I still report to Steve, our CMO and other people that I've talked with over the past several years, 
report internally, but I regarded it as a risk to give up um, something that is definitely, every company is looking for someone that can build, hire, manage a successful part or all of a marketing organization. No one's out there saying like, we're looking to hire a chief evangelist. Like, what do you think about that from, and now, now I shared my own story to get your reaction for someone who's listening that is somewhere in this zone of, I think I want this, maybe I do, maybe I don't. Like, what would you say to someone that says, gosh, this seems kind of like a career risk? It probably is. <laughs> it probably is. Uh, the, just it. like, you know, when people say, oh, we want to go build a category saying, like, I'm like, don't do it. Like, it's a suicide. Like, why would you do that? Like, because building a category is extremely hard unless you're fully committed to it and you're going to do it for the next decade and, and really stand behind it and, and not change uh, positioning and messaging every two months like, you know, your wardrobe. Like it's really hard building anybody who built categories. They are on that for decades together and, and stay on it and have the right same message. Mark Benioff is not changing green force to color force, right? Like he's not, he's not changing that inbound is still called inbound. Gainside has still pulse. Like all the people stay and commit to it for decades. Same way evangelism. If this is not your passion that like, oh, I don't, I, I really want to help customers. Well, that's all. I don't care about the uh, the accolades around from my internal peers because you'll have to get over that. You're never going to get accolades for what you do. And you just have to remind yourself and pat yourself on the back and keep going. You have to get good at that. Um, you, you, you have to recognize that you're doing it for a much greater return. But the most important thing is you have to have a buy-in from your executive team. If you don't have a buy-in from it, it's just not going to work. It will It will change just like the colors on the website change every six months. It has to bind. So if you're not in a C co-founder thing where you can actually exert a little bit more and you're getting through the ranks into it, like you and many, many others that I talk to, I tell them all the time, you have to have 100% buy-in and give yourself and the team a time. Um, tell that, all right, I'm going to do this, not for three months or six months. Either this is a 12-month uh, initiative. I'm going to do this really well. And then we're going to keep checking with each other how things are going. And we're going to report what's the best way to measure, what's the best way to do. But give, put yourself on a timeline with the executive team. So you're not in a situation where, all right, it's forever. Maybe it works and great, then you can extend it. Maybe it doesn't work and then you go back and do something else in your organization. But give yourself a timeline. That'd be helpful. Yeah, so much good stuff there. First, you remind me of a, of a gentleman that I'll eventually bring onto the show who reached out based on those four episodes we did and what I wrote up about it. And, and he had similar concerns. He got actually recruited into an organization because he had been on a panel with the CEO of this company. They had been observing him kind of at a, at a short distance and eventually recruited him to be a chief evangelist. And so he was, I, I forget, maybe several months into it. And he was like, Ethan, what skills am I developing that are marketable? Like when our company gets bought by someone and they look at the line items, like, what? you know, is this even a safe branch to be out on? And it was, so that's why I love your response to the question. It's like, you know, it is a leap of faith. And I do, the other thing I want to plus up on what you said there is, and this is from my own experience, like you, you, it does require this passion, right? The passion for the problem, the passion for the opportunity. For me, it's the passion for um, a business environment that is warmer and closer, a better business culture because of exclusively relying on faceless typed out text, we can feel like we know people we've never met. It is mind-blowing to me that you and I have never met in person. We will. <laughs> I, of course we will. We've been saying it for a long time, but like, yeah. you know, I, I like, but I still feel like I would call you a close friend. Like, like I just so yeah. uh, like in part two, and the other thing I'll say about this is I've listened to hours of your podcast, which is like even this kind of, you know, yeah. that's an interesting and weird dynamic too, where people are are, are being drawn into. And, and so it's this, I'm just going to tie back to the beginning, this, the human embodiment, like the reason we put a human in this role is because that's where and how we build trust to do it in a non-sales capacity or a non-marketing specific capacity makes you more approachable um, to do it at the sea level makes you uh, it gives you some degree of authority or presence. Presumably, you have the business acumen and the and the presence to 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 meet those or exceed those expectations when you're invited into a room or onto a call or into a sales kickoff or whatever you're being called into. Um, 
And it's this, um, it's the passion that you exude that transcends, I want to get this deal closed. Yeah. Or yeah. I want to retain this revenue. Those are all downstream consequences, but there's something really powerful about that. It is. One thing I, I've always shared with the team is that if I'm in a room, I need to be one of the most excited people in the room. And I, and if I'm not, if you're not that person who's bouncing off the walls, literally in a sense that you're excited that you get to talk about the problem, you're excited to meet a customer, you're excited to solve problems, you're excited to create value. If those things don't exude out of every word, every move you make in a room or a Zoom, whatever you do, then you're not fit for that role because then it's then your baggage. Like it's it's how simple as it is. Uh, you're nobody's gonna give you the silver spoon. You have to engage in that from day one. And that either comes naturally to you or it might take a lot of training to get there and, and you have to make a, make a choice. Yeah. So um, I guess just to go into a topic we haven't yet talked about on this show that definitely is in zone and you have I, you and I have just both kind of brushed by it a little bit um, in this conversation already, but talk about books. So, you know, as you were advancing this idea of account-based marketing. I think it was, um, you know, to give it language and a framework and to write the initial book, um, account-based marketing, the follow-up ABM is B2B. Um, talk about why you felt like a book was the thing and kind of how that filled in um, with the rest of the work that you were doing to reach people and educate people, inform people, advance the conversation, advance the ABM movement and, and understanding to provide some, and that's the reason, by the way, why I'm doing this podcast is, you know, to draw the parallel, people had heard of ABM, but not everyone understood what it was. And so it's like, someone needs to like lay this thing down yeah. and like create some norms and best practices around it. And you were one of the key people to do that. Um, why a book? And what, what did you learn about the process of writing those first couple books about ABM in particular? So book to me is like the best form of, uh, business card that you can create and leave with somebody um, and nobody throws a book away typically they'll they'll, they'll stack it up like i do and then you know, read some of it not all of it uh, but they, they, people love people love the idea of it it also was a forcing function it allowed it forced us to put things together and put it put it all together but the most important thing the reason i wanted to do that within the first we did that in the first year of our business was i felt like that nobody knew us nobody knew sangram nobody knew terminus we were based in Atlanta, first-time founders, really, and trying to build a new category. We didn't even know what that meant. We looked at, and you go to New York, and you're, if you're new, you know exactly who the new people are because they will be walking around like this, looking up at you know, the skyscrapers, and you're like, oh, they're visitors. They, they have no idea. And everybody's a New Yorker. They're looking down or looking straight and trying to go fast. So it, it was like that in the early days. It was like, what is going on? This is a whole new world. And we felt at that time that we have to make our presence felt and known and make noise and create movement around this thing. If you want to do that, we have to be the authority on it. We'll bring others along the way, but we have to be the authority force on it. And one of the best ways we could have done that was just writing a book. And we've written and taught it so much in the first nine months that Wiley's was like, okay, if you want to do a book, you've already written like 10,000 or 100,000 words, like blogs and articles. So you, yeah, you should be able to do that. And I think that was great because that allowed us to get back into the media. Media started to interview us. We were able to use that as a direct mail for our customers. Oh, you guys wrote the book on it. So you must know a thing or two. So people would take up the call. Uh, it, it just builds credibility over a period of time. And, and I would never forever thought that I would write a book. Like that was not part of my job description cards to do it. This wasn't just honestly was a marketing strategy. Um, even ABM is B2B. The way it came around was, all right, it's been three years. And the first book we wrote, we didn't have stories of companies who did that. It was more of our view of how it should be done. Now we have thousands of customers who have done it. So ABM is B2B was to say that, okay, here are stories, here's a framework, here's the maturity model for that. And also that ABM is growing, starting to become bigger than just demand generation. It should be for all of your B2B functions, pipeline velocity, customer expansion, and elements of it. So the books really just, it took the life of its own and we continued to execute on that gut feeling like we need to do it differently. We need to be the authority for it. We need to be the first to put out there and just do it in a way that people can understand and absorb that content. 
so good. And I love the forcing function dynamic in particular. It's like, well, we've taught this this way. We taught this over there. We know these things. And like, okay, now we got a deal. There's a deadline on it. It's a contractual obligation. Like we now we have to really pull it all together. And I love the, the line that you drew between the two books. So good. Um, for someone listening who could uh, implement evangelism in a formal way, a leader in an organization, a co-founder, CEO, whatever, um, what is something you would, uh, maybe a, a provocative question or or a direct statement that would really get them thinking about it the right way and to help them decide, is this for me now or for us now? Like, how should they be thinking about this opportunity? Yeah. Well, putting it directly or bluntly would be like, well, if you had to cut you know, 60% of your staff would evangelist person would be on it. What about 40%? What about 20%? Where would the evangelist person be on the chopping block? Because just like when budget get tight, the first place where the budgets get cut is marketing budget because that's on a spreadsheet. And then, you know, and then, and then slowly towards people. Uh, and I think evangelist is always on a chopping block uh, from day one. So if, if if the person is on the chopping block from day one, just let, let the cat out of the bag already. Let's just talk through it. But if you have to let go of 60% of the people, would you what would you do with an evangelist? Like, would you keep that person? Would you see value in it? If yes, why? If no, why not? I think that answers pretty much their intent with the entire. Either they would lie directly to, the, to you about it. When that happens, you'll find out the truth. Uh, or they will be truthful and just let you know, yep, yeah, I, I luxury. And then you know you don't need to be in that position. Love it. How about somebody who uh, is thinking about this? You're like, ah, you know, I heard this. I read that. I talked to that person. I saw a LinkedIn post about it. It seems kind of interesting for me. Um, same same question, but for someone thinking about whether or not they should be in an evangelist role. Yeah, that person, quite frankly, Ethan, like you are such a great example of that. Right? I, think, I think you are probably in a much better position to answer that since you lived it, you went through it, and you had the opportunity, you seized it, and you have clearly done really, really well. Um, my, my two cents, and I want your perspective on this too, uh, on this is if you feel that, if you feel like that's something you want to do, you have to put yourself on a timeline. You have to say, give me three months to do this and test this and, and find out what is it real because it's it, it could be really challenging for you because all of a sudden you don't have a footing. All of a sudden it doesn't, there is no line item that talks about you. And all of a sudden you have to create your own projects and nobody's like, well, why would I do what you're asking me to do when I have a boss that tells me what to do and pays me? So it's a very uncharted territory for, for someone who hasn't really been there and doesn't have the blessing and the positioning around it. So put yourself on a timeline, give yourself the opportunity, experiment with it, try doing some of it on the as an additional stuff until you become like, you know, I did that twice. I felt good. We have support. Maybe we should go in and launch this into more of a formal thing. Love it. I guess what I would share to pick up on it, I would I would ask like, are you running away from something or running towards something? And it just ties into our passion and belief yeah. and curiosity and drive and perseverance. Like if you're running towards something, that's a lot more interesting to me than like, I'm not really fulfilled in what I'm doing. And that seems like something I could do. Like that's not it for yeah. me. It's, and, yeah. and, and then the other one is, you know, um, try it. And this is, this is all, this is in stories we've already released on the podcast, but then it's also something I've talked about with a number of other people that I'll, that I'll invite on is do it off the side of your desk for a while. Try to quantify. And it's very difficult to quantify specific benefits, but do it off the side of your desk a little bit and see if a, you love doing it and B it's helping you get done. The reason you think you should be doing this thing yeah. And then start talking about that and build the bridge into it because that's a good way to to prove value. And um, you know, it's not as big a leap of faith. The tighter you can draw that out, you know. And so, um, anyone who wants more on that, I talked with Jen Allen um, of Challenger on that, and we talk at length about how she did this. And she was like creating. She was a salesperson, so she was doing this like twenty five percent of her time, and they were geographically 
oriented. So she was only getting the deals she was generating in her geography and had to give away like 70% of these warm opportunities she was creating through her kind of, you know, evangelism experiments and then built this bridge into it. Anyway, um, that's a lot of folks stories. What do you think last couple of things here? Cause I know we're close to time. What is the future of this? Do you feel like there are going to be more evangelists or fewer? Is it going to morph into something else? Like any thoughts on where this is going? Just like you are having right now, Ethan, I'm having very ton of conversations on it. Uh, I think most people are recognizing the need for it. Uh, the more, the biggest challenge is, is this something that people can quantify and actually make it part of their DNA? Um, it's easier if you start doing that in the early part of it. I think that's what happened for us at Terminus. It is harder to do it a little bit later in it. And, and then it becomes more of like, well, add on, well, we do, we should have an evangelist. And then you, you have somebody who kind of does it um, and it turns into more of a thought leadership kind of thing. But honestly, it's way more than thought leadership. It's really building trust. Like the internal, external thing that we talked about, it has to be, it has to be part of your ethos. So in many ways, I think the future is that more companies are going to have evangelist role. I have no doubt about it. They may not call them evangelists though. They may be like, hey, you, from a product perspective, you need to go, uh, go do those things. Example, uh, I was talking to Godard, um, who's the CEO of G2. And I'm like, man, Godard, I'm seeing you at everything. I'm seeing you at Inbound. I met him there. Then I saw him at Salesforce, at Dreamforce. Then he was at Saster. Now he's going to India for his uh, India team and APAC and, and London. And I'm like, what are you doing? And like, he's like, dude, right now, and he's the CEO. This is a $100 million company, right? And he's like, look, right now, because everybody's focused on efficient growth and everybody's trying to make sure things are tight, I just want to be frontline leader. I want to go in and meet our teams, meet our customers, make them feel that we exist and we are for them and we want to do this thing together. And I just want to be at the front line. So I'm using this season of, of this year to be that. So I'm like, in many ways, he's acting. He's acting as the evangelist. So I don't know if the role itself will became will become the, the de facto uh, part of it. But I think people need to start acting in that role at the highest levels in the organizations. Love it. And with just a little bit more intent, because a lot of folks are probably doing it by default, but like doing it with some higher degree of intention. I know you're all about being intentional. It's amazing. Um, so um, I'm going to let you go. I so appreciate our time. I have like, a, I mean, we need to do another conversation on community in particular, on thought leadership, where that, where those lines are, what its limitations are. So many follow-up questions, but um, for folks who are listening, A, you should read MOVE, the go-to-market framework. Um, and Sangram, where would you send people to connect with you, learn about the book, learn about your podcast, um, and follow up on some of these things? Well, how about this? I'll do one better. Uh, just DM me on LinkedIn and that you listen to this podcast, anything that made you think about it, and I'll ship you a copy of the book. Amazing. Sangram Vajre. You need to connect with him on LinkedIn and DM him. Free book coming your way. It's a fantastic read, by the way. I've recommended it to a number of people. And um, and I'm currently doubling back to have conversations with them about it. Um, so you, as I said off the top, you are a fantastic human being. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for spending this time with me and um, continued success. Next time in person, that's what we got to do. Du exactly. Yes. I need to like, I need, you need to publish your travel schedule online. <laughs> I'll just like hunt you down somewhere. Let's do it, man. Thank cool. you so much for having me. Thank you. That wraps up this episode of Chief Evangelist. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to Ringmaster Conversational Marketing for helping bring these episodes to you. With any thoughts or questions about the Chief Evangelist role, message me on LinkedIn. I'm Ethan Butte, E-T-H-A-N-B-E-U-T-E. -E -E. For show notes and more of these conversations, visit chiefevangelist.com.